When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with journalist Matt Taibbi. He's reported on politics, media, finance, and sports, winning the National Magazine Award for Commentary in 2008. He's also the author of three New York Times bestselling books on politics and culture. For Rolling Stone, continuing in the tradition, the magazine started with Hunter S. Thompson's coverage of Nixon's 1972 presidential campaign. Taibbi has covered the last four election cycles. His dispatches from the 2016 election circus, crazy house, mad people, bouncy bus, are the basis of his new book, Insane Clown President. Welcome to Think Again, Matt. Well, thanks for having me, Jason. All right, so reading your book, I started to feel like, I mean, I guess I've been feeling like this since the election happened, that I've been living in some state of denial that I was not aware of at all, and I guess I'm not alone among liberals in, in mm-hmm. this, but like I thought I was pretty clear-eyed and that I understood the extent to which the system and uh, sort of all systems in a way are rigged, but you know, reading your book, it seems like much, much more horrible than I even thought. I mean, I, I, what, <laughs> what, what, what part of the book was like a revelation? Because it, I mean, for me, like, the big revelation was just how, how cut off we are from you know how how angry people are out there, and that that yeah. was me as like a as like a you know a, per, a liberal who lives in New York, and you know right. I, I think this was a big message sent to all of us. You know. Yeah. No. I mean, parts that were a revelation that probably shouldn't have been are just like I just realized that in the back of my mind I have this like even though I know that the two party system where it's at right now mm-hmm. is very kind of is completely kind of mobbed up, as it were, with corporate interests and whatever, and that the media is also kind of a disaster in terms of what it's reporting and why. Right. Uh, I just somehow in the back of my mind thought it was all going to be okay or something, right. I guess. Right. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I don't no. feel that way anymore. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I, I get that. I, mean, I think even people who do it for a living, you right. know, right. Um, people like me, we thought even if you can see the flaws in it, you know, and it's hard not to if you're doing it, you thought it worked on some level. Right. And what happened this year is that it just, it completely collapsed, you know, and it turned out that a lot of these institutions that we thought were really powerful and solid, they turned out to be thinner than tissue paper, and, and Trump just steamrolled through all of these these institutions like they weren't even there. And yeah. it was a hard lesson for a lot of people to learn. Yeah, but like, so I had um, the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek on this show bef- just like the day before the election when we all thought that Hillary was mm-hmm. gonna win. And he was like, 
Actually, it's a shame that uh, in his thick Slovenian accent. Actually, it's is that it, your, your Slovenian accent. A terrible shame. Yeah, this is my terrible Slovenian <laughs> accent. Um, no, but he's saying that like you know, it's a terrible shame that Trump isn't going to win, which we then thought because. What this is, is like blowing up the disastrous system that you mm -hmm. describe so cartoonishly, wonderfully in your book, you know, that all of these kind of assumptions that we had that we could just sort of go on forever with this kind of mediocre corporate run politics. Insular, yeah. Yeah, collapses. And it's like, even though he is a disaster and a right. monster, at least this points up the ridiculousness and the hollowness of the whole system. Yeah, no, We're, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, he... The Trump thing was a two-pronged kind of phenomenon. On the one hand, it's this amazing iconoclastic force, right, that goes in and destroys all of the, these conceptions that we have, you know, these kind of false idols that we've been wor worshiping for, right. for decades, you know, in the media and about the presidency and about the two parties. But the problem is what he replaces it with is even dumber than the things that we were believing in before, you know? So it's, yeah. it's kind of like a perfect black comedy. Like we were deluded all these years by, by the, you know, this kind of conspiracy of stupidity that had a stranglehold on our politics. Right. And he wrecks it, and then of course he replaces it with, with something that's even worse. Yeah, like you kind of like Bernie, it seems. And, mm -hmm. and you had the sense that like, I mean the way, I, if, I'm, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, sort of the way you describe it in the book is like, He's doing the same thing. He's looking at the system for totally different reasons and from a completely different perspective. Right. So looking at the system and saying this is all completely messed up. You guys are focusing on the wrong things. This is, you know, et cetera. But he doesn't play as well as Trump does on right. TV, plus the media then decides to kind of ignore him as well. Right, but, right. Yeah, the big advantage that Trump had over Bernie Sanders is that Trump gets ratings. What people forget is we have a commercial system of media, right? right? And it depends on grabbing eyeballs and getting hits and all those things. So if you're, you know, Trump is was always, you know, organically going to get more coverage than somebody like Bernie Sanders. And then there's also this kind of like deeper thing that goes on in our business that's kind of insidious, which is that news directors they have this kind of sixth sense about what's newsworthy and what isn't. Bernie Sanders is considered political in our world, whereas Trump is considered just good copy. You know what I'm saying? Right. It, it's a it's a very difficult distinction, and um, it's hard so to Trump, explain. So Trump Trump plays to like all audience demographics, right? Because he's either disgusting or funny or you know saying the thing you want him to say to the man. And he's a legitimate news story because right. he, he was he was leading a real rebellion against his party. Right. So we had to cover him, and he was he was ahead in the polls, but he also checked all these other boxes, right? right. Like he's, he's a Kardashian, he's a car wreck, you know what I mean? Like he's, right. he's all these things that the media loves, whereas Bernie Sanders is an earnest, you know, political, you know, and he's a rebel in all the wrong ways for, yeah. for the commercial media. And, and, he, he, and he, doesn't, he doesn't excite advertisers. He's not sexy. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's not sexy to listen to him going, we have to tear down the banks, even though that's a very Right. True thing. <laughs> right. And, 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 and Bernie and, and Trump were talking about a lot of the, you know, they, they had like an almost identical message about the, the influence of money uh, in politics. Of right. course, Trump was completely bogus about it, but, you right. know, but they were saying a lot of the same things. So, yeah. Yeah. Like, do you have any sense in terms of optimism, pessimism, or just pure neutrality as to whether 
you know, like Zizek was saying, is gonna, in the end, bring us closer to some sort of roots that matter if Trump messes things up badly enough that we all realize what an idiot he right. was. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely like, uh, it's hard to be optimistic in that direction. The only other thing I would say is that, you know, the demographics all showed that the next generation of voters, you know, overwhelmingly doesn't want the fake thing. They want, right. they want a politics that's more immediate. The way that Bernie put it to me, that, which I thought was really interesting, was that people are tired of hearing about a 14-point plan that's going to, like, come true 15 years from now. They want politics that's going to deliver a result in their actual lives, like, next year. You know what right. I mean? And they're tired of, of being told, you know, to wait while the kind of the same old, same old goes on. And I think that, that bodes well. People should demand more from their leaders. So I, so I want to talk a little bit about like the kind of like Hunter S. Thompson School of Journalism, which like you are not, you know, Hunter you, S. Thompson. Hunter S. You guys, no, I don't mean that the way that sounds. <laughs> no, it's true. I, I love your writing and I laughed out loud throughout your book and I think it's totally insightful and spot on. But it's like definitely in that same tradition, right? I mean, would you agree with that? I mean, like, well, well, A, you're at Rolling Stone. Yeah, I mean, I have his job. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 and you're on the beat. And But but that same tradition of sort of like dark satirical kind mm -hmm. of like the sort of written version of a political cartoon, and I right. guess I understand that synergy between you and your cartoonist. What's his? Uh, oh, Victor. Victor, Victor yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Victor's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. And we both, we both feel a lot of pressure because... Hunter Thompson and Ralph Steadman, who was his artist, were they're like the gold standard for for political and campaign writing. You right. know, I think the the thing that I always remember about Hunter, I remember it's actually a detail from The Boys in the Bus, which is Tim Krause's book about okay. and and what he said was when Hunter Thompson went home, his wife didn't have to ask him what the campaign trail was like. All the other reporters, you know, when they when they went home, you know, their, their spouses asked them what it was like. Right. He didn't have to do that because all she had to do was read his, his stories. You know, it was a realistic picture of what it was like out there. You know, right. And, but but Hunter Thompson also had this other crazy dimension <laughs> to his writing that you know, first of all, what kind of elevated it to an, another level was his total like lurid obsession with the evil of Nixon you know like he had this right. weird like supernatural Fixation. connection yeah exactly and then there was his book like way more than my than my book is was this kind of sprawling physical journey that he took I mean he, he was on the road a lot yeah. more than I was and it it kind of reads a lot I, I wrote the uh, introduction to his last the last version of that book you know, it reads like a book like The Castle or, you know, the, right. the, the Trial. You know, he's like searching and searching and searching for this answer, you know, but he's, he's trapped in this like horrible fake world of just obsequiousness and, and falsity and like, you know, people. And, and Nixon was like the ultimate symbol. And he can never quite find, he wanted McGovern to be his salvation in that book. And, and he doesn't find it, you know, like, like all classic comic journeys, you know. And I, I see something similar. Thompson makes himself more of a like yeah. character in mm -hmm. his own writing than you do. Mm -hmm. I mean, you write about your thoughts as as it's unfolding, but it's not it's not about you per se. But like, but you know, what do you see as kind of the like as you move through this swamp of American politics, and 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 you do a like a very funny and detailed job of presenting the horrors of it in, in great, you know, in, in, with great precision. 
But like, how do you, what is your kind of like, what keeps you waking up in the morning aside from how funny it all is? Because I feel like, I feel like there's an idealism under there. Like you're aiming at something beyond, I mean, there's entertainment, but there's, but like what, you know. Um, well, you know, writing for me from when I was really young has just been my way of kind of staying sane. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, I have a basically, I think, absurdist view of the universe you know I think it's a mixture of like the extremely awful and the extremely ridiculous and maybe it's not a relief but you know when you feel like you get it right you know and okay. uh, to sort it out it has a kind of calming effect on my psyche you know um, so it's not about like we're going like anywhere better that we ought to be going it's more about just kind of accurately depicting yeah no the yeah, nature for, of the beast yeah for me the the job is just about describing it, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and um, you know, reality is is so multi layered and weird and tragic and comic and you know all yeah, of these yeah. things at once. And especially this campaign. I mean, it's there are so many extremes of human behavior that were like on display here. It, I, it's a very difficult situation to sort out. You know, there were lots of different dynamics at work, you know, the, the press, the money, you know, Trump's own personality, all this stuff. It's very, yeah, yeah. very hard to get it right, you know, and, and so it's a big, like, intellectual challenge, but, you know, in terms of, like, idealism, that, you know, that, that's not what it's about, you know, okay. for me, you know okay. what I mean? It's, okay. it's, uh, it's just trying to depict what it is, and um, what it was was just, like, this uniquely bizarre, horrible situation yeah so that kind of like dark pragmatism that you're talking about feels Russian to me and you like <laughs> I know you like you were a big fan of Russian literature mm -hmm. as a young person mm -hmm. big fan of Gogol which it certainly has he has like a, a very dark absurdist view of the yes. world a lot and, of them do yeah. yeah and then you spend a lot of time in Russia too like how many years? 11 years 11 yeah. years yeah. Yeah. yeah so do you feel like did that kind of like inform the way that you think about and, and like see the the world? Is that still operate or was it just a perfect synergy between who you already were and like Russia and you know? Well, I mean, I, I grew I really grew up in Russia. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I went there after college and then my I, I didn't come home until maybe 32 years old. And so my whole youth Young was spent adult. there and it, I was there during a time of extraordinary horrible corruption that was visible in a way that you know is is rare in any society you know there right. was, it was it was it was documented it was out in the open there were people being blown up on the street every single day and okay. and you could you could see the connections between how power works and what corruption is in a way that like Americans just really aren't you know we don't have that kind of education here we're taught you know the schoolhouse rock version of how how society works and Whereas, but I think you would probably say that a lot of that is still, I mean, people aren't blowing up in the streets, but a right. lot of that sausage being made is still going on in horrible, lurid ways behind the scenes yeah. here. We yeah. just don't see it. We but. don't see it. And, and it's only now, I think, that our politics is becoming as grotesque or it's approaching, you know, the gr grotesquerie <laughs> of what Russia looks like. So that... that Seeing the way things work over there, I think that definitely informed the way I look at everything, you know, and human nature, politics, everything. And then, you know, obviously, the books that I grew up reading probably have a lot to do with the style of how, how I 
portray things. You know, I, like, I, I spent a lot of time this, this year thinking about a book called Envy by a writer named Yuri Alesha. Okay. Um, I don't know it, that one. I love he, Russian literature. I don't know that it's one. A, it's a pretty rare book. He, he never really wrote anything else except this one book, but it's about this guy who works in a, a Soviet sausage factory, and his boss is this, like, okay. grotesque, fat, horrible person who makes sausage and all he does is ruminate all day long about what an awful person this is okay and it's like 300 pages of that he never really wrote anything else all he was like put on earth to write this one book about how his sausage boss was a bad person and, <laughs> and tr trump to me like he, he was that like, he was very similar to the to the anti to the babachev character in that book who like the awful grotesque monster in that book and um i think you know. sausage boss might be my new <laughs> internal nickname for, for, for Trump. He, did, he felt he felt like he, he was very similar to that character so got you yeah. well i don't mean to harp on this but like you have you have children now and you've got another mm -hmm. one on the way and so like if the world is a total grotesquerie, like, what do you want to tell your kids about it? You know what I mean? Like, do you want to tell them just look at it square in the face, get it right? You know what I'm saying? Like, come in with that, like, and then facing fatherhood, like, how, what's your, where's your thinking going on that, if, if you don't mind us going? Sure, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. what you do as a citizen and, and what your response is to things and how you deal with it as a, you know, a literary subject, I think they're, they're two Two different things, you know. Um, right, the job of the reporter versus like right. how you live in the world. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people would disagree with that. You know, they would say that if you're having an impact on society, you know, you should try to push it in a direction if you have some kind of influence. But um, my view of of things is that when people are presented with the truth, that they'll come around to their own way of deciding things and that, that, that ultimately that's what our job more than more than pushing people in a direction you right, know right, and, right. and so they have to, if you can present something in like with hallucinatory clarity a little bit you know what <laughs> I, I mean got like, you, got you. Um, over the years you know I've, I've definitely noticed that a lot of young people who grew up and there aren't a lot of people there but there are a few people who grew up you know reading my stuff I can kind of see them online um, like imitating the voice or yeah whatever. Or, or have or at least having skepticism about things in a way that you know is good you know right and, uh, right all that's healthy but in terms of what I would tell my kids I mean, you know, don't be a reporter. You like, be <laughs> get, get a real job. You know what I mean? And my wife's a doctor. I think yeah, that would be a better thing for them to get into. So. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. All right. Cool. Shall we get to the second part where sure. we watch the surprise videos? So the first one is Tim Wu, um, who I believe is a kind of media and cultural commentator on uh, celebrities as Greek gods of the modern day. <laughs> so let's see what what that's all about. Celebrity is a really mysterious thing that I don't think anyone fully understands. Why are we so interested in these people who are just people, but somehow have come to embody you know, some greater uh, idea? It's not even that they're great. I mean, you don't worship them um, necessarily because they're more virtuous than we are or lofty or something. Um, if they're like gods, they're more like the Greek gods, you know, they're prone to embarrassing drunken incidents, they say outlandish things, but somehow people just can't seem to look away from celebrities, and it's not something uh, new. Although what is new is the effort to commercialize that fact to an extent never seen before, the effort to build entire 
platforms, magazines on nothing but celebrity by itself is a development of the, of the 20th and, and 21st century. When I was running for office, uh, for instance, you know, we'd have an important proposal about corruption or something. But when we brought out Mark Ruffalo <laughs> to endorse our candidacy, oh, now, now we're talking. Suddenly everybody was there. I've read a lot of the literature on why people are so interested in celebrities. I think they don't really understand. The most compelling to me are the ideas that compare it to this sort of instinct that is also inherent in religion and that we're sort of looking for transcendence of the normal. If you, you know, somehow end up running into Tom Cruise or, or Tom Hanks or, you know, you may not even care for them as actors. I mean, different, but somehow I think there's this effect. Or Tom Brady, I've now named three Toms. Uh, you'll be like, oh my goodness, there they are. And, and maybe your heart will start to beat. There's a biological reaction. It's really quite strange. Even if you hate the Patriots, you might still have a reaction. And, you know, why that happens, no one really quite understands. I think the people who compare it to this religious impulse that there's these sort of gods walking on earth, not necessarily beneficent gods, but that they ex exist in a slightly different realm than we do. Um, there's some, something to those theories because I just can't really understand it otherwise. That's a tough topic. I, the nature of celebrity, why, why we're so obsessed with it. I think it's the thing that's only been accelerated a lot by the internet and by social media. Yeah. They're more and more important in our lives. It was a huge factor in this last election. Uh, Donald Trump, you know, I hate to keep going back to no, that. No, no, please but, keep but, going uh, back to it. Yeah, yeah. He grasped on some level that all attention is positive ultimately right. uh, in, in this new kind of politics where, you know, the denunciations of the corporate media didn't matter anymore. What mattered was building up your Q rating, really. You know, you, you were trying to get hits. You were trying to get heat on the internet. Q rating? What, what's that? You know, that's like measures how much of a celebrity you are. Oh, okay. It's like this right. Hollywood thing. Okay, right? all right. Mike Huckabee was another one who kind of tried to do the same thing, but Trump is just so much better at it than all of them. He, he just gobbles up attention from all, all quarters, and what it did is it, it just smashed the personas of all the other people he was in the field with and made them right. seem, you know, what he's, like he's talking about, that godlike quality of he's a, he's a bigger person than these other people because he's more famous than they are. And, and I think that was actually a big factor in the primary race because the, his opponents were, they turtled, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was really telling. I mean, I was no big fa fan of, of Jeb Bush by, by any means. It was really sad that like his last tweet of that primary thing was that like, it was like a gun on a car seat and it was like <laughs> America or something. It was like him desperately trying to be Trump at the 11th hour or something, right. you know. Please. And, yeah, like really, Jeb. But like you looked at, I looked at him and I was like, okay, like that, you know, that's a sort of genteel, educated Republican of a certain generation, whatever. And he looked like so oh, pathetic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, tr Trump looked horrible, but by he would comparison, yeah, bigger. Yeah, he just Jeb looked small and like a little yeah weenie. What, what Jeb should have done. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, there there was that moment in the campaign where um, where Trump said, you know, basically. Of course, Jeb likes Me Mexicans. He's got a Mexican wife. You know what I mean? And he, and he started going off on him. Right. Jeb should have punched him in the face. Like that's the new realm. And then he in. like insulted Jeb's mom, and you write very hilariously about how you know Jeb was like, "I shall brook no insult <laughs> yeah. unto my mother," you <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. or whatever. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Just it just made him seem like like was, a mama's boy. You exactly. Know? Exactly. 
So going back to this idea of celebrity, though, like I don't think you can have the celebrity celebrities as gods without recognizing the extent to which we also like to see them crash and oh, burn. Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 So you know, there's some. You know, I feel like in a way they are. They're just sort of. Rather than being gods on earth, like we want somebody to defer to, it's more like they are avatars of ourselves, and we're sort of in, right. enjoying watching this kind of magnified, broad strokes journey of success, triumph, and failure as they. Yeah, happen. we we definitely in enjoy the downside more than we do yeah. the upside. I mean, we love to tear people down, and, yeah. and and it's it's a sickening instinct that we all have, you know. Right. But but while we're doing that, you know, <laughs> I think we all. We make ourselves smaller when we continually worship these other people, and even if we're tearing them down, we're implicitly agreeing with the idea that celebrities are more important than we are. You know, like yeah, uh, and and that right. and that dehumanizes people. Like I, I see all the time on Twitter, people will say things to you like, "Oh, don't respond to that person. He only has 19 followers." Like, what? That makes him less of a person than the, than the other person. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, you know Twitter I mean? is yeah, Twitter is disgusting that way too. I mean, that's just another aspect of the same problem. Like right. the way that people. I mean, I'm guilty of this too. I'm. I, it's uh, ladies and gentlemen. You know, like trying to not follow more people than you are followed by. Well, um, the, the obsession that people have with the size of your profile. I mean, it, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense that Trump is the president. This, this is somebody who like, is literally talking about like mine's bigger than yours in the middle of a debate. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. We're at a level of shallowness that's like below elementary school now. In, that's in terms right. of our public discourse now, and 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 it's. And it really gets back to this idea of, of celebrity. Like, I, I'm the most famous person in the world. I'm the biggest person in the world. Big right. is what matters. You know what I mean? We're devaluing people who don't have profile, don't have money, don't have whatever. That's and right. it's disgusting. I mean, it, it, it's something. Well, I mean, you know, it's like, we, as you say, yeah, it makes us smaller. It, we dehumanize both the celebrities and everyone who's not a celebrity somehow in the right. same action. In the old days, I hate to be like an old fogey, you know what I mean? <laughs> this is old fogey hour Exactly. With Matt and Jason. It's embarrassing, but you know, like, it, I certainly grew up with the idea that, you know, everybody should hold their chin up and, and not think of themselves as lower than anybody else, no matter how rich or famous they are, you know what right. I mean? Like, that should be a value that we teach the people, right? Yeah. But nobody believes that anymore. Now, now it's, you know, who, like, you know, Trump, Trump exemplifies this. I have more money than you. I'm more successful than you. I'm more of a person than you are. You know what I mean? Right. And this is like a value that we now have. So I want to then I want to talk a little bit about because I feel like that's not true because I don't feel like most of the people I know think like that. And I sort of can't buy the argument that like that is because we are a tiny little rarefied minority. I mean, those are all the people I know. Like that's right. all the people in my life. And then there's a lot of other people who I guess think like this, but like Sure. Yeah. No, it's probably it's it's not true of everybody, <laughs> but it's increasingly a, a national value, I would think, you know. Statistically I, I, overwhelmingly the case. Yeah, and even if we don't ratify it in the case of somebody like Donald Trump, I think we all do on another level. It might, we might do it with different kinds of famous people. Right. We have, a, we have a, this incredible tendency now to, to build people up and make them famous and, and, and worship. Like if you watch, just to take a totally stupid example, sure. watch sports coverage now. Every time you watch any sports program, 
there, there's really only two narratives. This guy is the greatest person who's ever walked the earth. He's unbelievable. Like he mentioned Tom Brady. If you watch right. NFL programming, Tom Brady is like a god on earth. And like ESPN, there's 12 hours a day devoted to arguing over how, how great is, is the great Tom Brady, you know what I mean? Right. Which is ridiculous. I mean, he's a football player. You know what I mean? Like, like I get it. You know, right. you're, you're, you're selling a product. But people do that. They make gods out of people who are just people. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, throughout your book, there, you, you know, you're talking about, you know, this kind of narrative of how the, I don't know if you'd call them the liberal elite, but sort of us, I guess, educated mm -hmm. people in the East, sure. you know, on the coasts, had this very kind of like thumbing their nose attitude toward the, toward the, the middle of the country. We are talking about values. Like if people value somebody being bigger than somebody else right yeah then that's like i don't know how i'm supposed to respect that respect that value yeah, yeah. no no it, it's it's a total conundrum because it's a it's <laughs> a it's a you know the yin and yang it's a, it's a chicken and the egg thing are, are we making people hate us more and creating more resentment because we're laughing at people and looking down at them for having bad values but it, it, you know at the same time you know, what, are, what else are we supposed to do, right? Right. Well, I mean, I was taught to respect, for example, education. I right. do respect education. I respect well-read people. Does that mean that somebody who doesn't have an education or, or hasn't read many books that I'm going to treat them like crap if I meet them? No. But then when it comes down to a national contest and the thing that they want in the White House is Donald Trump. Right then I got a problem, you know? Yeah, especially if part of their motivation in picking <laughs> Donald Trump was to horrify you, right. you know? Right, yeah. but, but I feel like sometimes I feel like the narrative, you know, is like, well, we deserved that because we ignored them, but I don't know, how do you sort of speak to that? Well, there are, there are legitimate problems and illegitimate problems, right. you know? If you go out to the places where Trump is popular, a lot of them are ex-factory towns, you know, where right. we used to have... Right. Not having a job is a legit Not having problem. a job is a legit problem. And, and I think it's a source of almost all of this resentment. I mean, look, yeah. and this is another one of my little pet peeves. Okay. Everyone says, like, no, it was all about race. Well, here's what happens when people don't have jobs. They become more racist. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's. it's they not, look for scapegoats. They look whatever for Whatever it might be, you know. Yeah, yeah. When they're, when, they're an, when they're not feeling good, when they, when they don't have pride, you know, right. uh, when they feel put upon, when they feel laughed at, they get angry and they get irrational and they and they you know they, they lash out and right. you know if the economy was really good everywhere and things were just humming along, we might have a shallow country, but it wouldn't be as pissed off as it is. You know what I mean? Right. I, I, yeah. No, it comes back to this dehumanization thing, which isn't like only through making heroes out of celebrities, but that's definitely part of it. Like our whole culture, kind of celebrating these outsized characters and then essentially removing pride from right. the average, like everyone is worthless more or less. Right, like, right, right. And so if you already have that sense that you don't matter in the scheme of things and then you also don't don't have a job, can't get a job, are ignored on TV, you know, your town doesn't, you know, whatever. Yeah. You don't have the trappings, you know, you, you can't, you can't show off, you can't, you know, you know, and people, you know, they used to have this idea, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know I, I do an honest job, I get my honest day's wage, I have my house, right. I'm proud of my house. Right. You know, now everyone's in debt, nobody has a house, you know, they're, they're, they're foreclosed on, you know, and, and these things are all, you know, angst, 
creating. You, you, you talk a lot about unions in your writing and how sort of the Democratic Party should, you know, has abandoned the unions and should be more supportive of them. There is this narrative, and I don't know how true it is because I'm not currently, in, well, I've been, I was in the teachers union at oh, one really? point. Oh, really? Okay. We had the sense then, and I think it was true, that there was a giant, bloated, corrupt bureaucracy in the teachers union as well. Sure. And that, you know, it was, in a sense, a part of the whole problem. systemic problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know how I feel about that with respect to factory unions, and seems to be plenty of evidence that the unions, in some ways, also. Sure, yeah. held things back, you know, for the for for the American auto worker, for example, by demanding things that industry ultimately was like, well, I'm just going to sidestep that, right? You know, right? Yeah, I mean, that's tough to. I mean, I've never been in a union either. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, yeah. I can only go by what people what people say, and right. you know, I talked to union members who said, look, if we were being real about who who we'd throw our support to, like during a primary season, we would always pick somebody like, you know, going back. Ages, Dick Gephardt, or Kus mm. or Kucinich, or whoever, like people who are down the line union people. That's who we. That's who we'd pick. We'd stay with them until there was a nominee, and then we get behind the Democratic nominee. But they haven't done that since Clinton era. They've, they've right. what they've done is they've, you know, when the manufacturing economy left, when you know they there was all this threat that if you didn't play ball with the employers, they were going to move overseas somewhere or whatever. This new kind of instinct took over, where it's like let's just you know, preserve what we can before the inevitable end comes, you know, and right. let's just, let's, let's have a friend in the White House, at least, someone we can at least call, you know, right. rather, rather than make demands, you know, right. and so what they ended up with was people who threw a few bouquets at the unions, but they didn't really, you know, defend, you know, what, what they were after, and so we end up with free trade agreements, we end up with all these other things where jobs are exported overseas, but we're not really enforcing the idea of, like, there, there should be worker protections abroad, so we're, yeah, yeah. we're undercutting, you know, 150 years of progress, and, you know, et cetera, No, that's et right. No, I just, I'm wondering, like, are, is it a Scylla and Charybdis now between the unions and, and Wall Street? Does, does the union need some sort of not Trump moment, but Bernie moment or something right. to the, you know, to collapse internally and, and represent the American workers better. I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's I don't a little know. above my pay grade. Com com yeah. Complex. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Me too. Let's, uh, let's, let's watch the second okay. uh, of our two uh, surprise videos. Then. All right. So this is Susan David, who is a Harvard psychiatrist talking about our unhealthy obsession with happiness. <laughs> so this, this should be fun. Life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. You are healthy until you are not. You are with the people that you love until you are not. You have a job that you love until for some reason that job no longer works out. It is really important that as human beings, we develop our capacity to deal with our thoughts and emotions in a way that isn't a struggle, in a way that embraces them and is with them and is able to learn from them. What I worry about when there is this message of be happy is that people then automatically assume that when they have a difficult thought or feeling that they should push it aside, that it's somehow a sign of weakness. And what that does is it actually stops people from being authentic with themselves. 
it hinders our ability to learn from our experience. And I believe that it is stopping us as a society, including our children, from developing higher levels of well-being and resilience. A better way to focus on happiness is for us not to be focused on the goal of happiness per se, but rather what it is that we value, what it is that is important to us intrinsically, and how every day we can make moves towards that thing without the overarching expectation being that we will somehow be happier. What happens when we focus intrinsically on what is important to us? Happiness becomes an outstanding byproduct of that focus. First of all, like, is that really the case anymore or and for whom that that happiness is now the is the primary aspiration? Like, I feel like we're in a, a strange time where yeah, I don't know what most people aspire to. I don't know, the circles I run in maybe are trying to be calm. Like they seem to, meditation seems to right. be taking over and there's the idea of just being kind of Zen. clear yeah, 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 or yeah. whatever. Uh-huh. I don't know, like do you, do you feel like happy, do you feel pressure to, to be happy, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, yeah. and it's a big reason why I, I lived in Russia for, for so many years. You know, it's kind of a funny story. Like when I was, when I was a teenager, I had terrible problems with depression. I was depressed all the time. I felt totally oppressed by like smiling faces all around me all the time, people who were happy, uh, you know, turning on the TV, seeing everybody like with their toothy smiles and commercials and and this idea that everybody needs to make a lot of money and and look great and, and be successful. I found all that stuff really oppressive. And then when I went to study in the Soviet Union in 1990, and everybody was just as depressed as I was, and nobody had the expectation that we were even supposed to be happy, you know. And they was, don't smile, Russians. Well, they, or not, they, not, not like when they meet you. That's yeah, not, exactly. It's not. That's like, not a thing. It's not fake, you know. Like they, they, they just are, you know. And and I felt totally liberated being in that environment. I felt like, wow, this is this is like, you know, where I was supposed to grow up. And the Russians just had a very different different way of looking at the world. They don't have the expectation. Not only do they not expect to be happy, they don't expect that, that their leaders won't be corrupt. <laughs> they, 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 right. they have all these, these these very different ways of looking at the world that are that kind of liberate them from anxiety. You know, like right. they've they've had such a terrible time in so many ways that they've had to cope in a different way. And then when you get back to America, look, this is a tough place to live. For instance, if you don't have a lot right. of money, right? Like New York is a very tough place to live if you're not making a fortune. You know, you like you can't Tell afford to go it. out with your friends. You can't. You can't. <laughs> it's like you can't afford to live in, in a real space, and you're constantly presented with these images of you know, success and wealth, and it can be very frustrating. And I, I, I agree with with what she's saying. I think you have to focus on what matters. Focus on that. Don't worry about whether or not you're happy. Just you know, be. You yeah. Know? What kind of teenager were, were, I mean, were you like clinically depressed or, oh, were, yeah. or yeah, okay, all right. And so were, you weren't like a, just a goth or a punk or something, you were. No, I was messed up. Yeah, 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 yeah. got you. Mm-hmm. I was like a suburban disaffected goth type teen mm-hmm. listening to Morrissey and The Cure. <laughs> um, I think I was depressed too, but just not, yeah, not like 
Right, right. Hardcore. Sure. Depressed. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing you're describing about Russia, though, that also sounds, that also sounds like cultural cynicism born of centuries of disappointment which doesn't necessarily which while on the one hand may alleviate the anxiety of having to feel happy all the time doesn't necessarily feel like the best way oh i don't think it would be i don't think it's a good thing i mean like you know (laughs) it was was good for me because because i could leave yeah yeah you know what i mean like i I think to be born into that culture to be to have the weight of all these crushing dis- disappointments and cruelties like you know accumulated yeah. in our, and of course not that we don't have that in our history but yeah. it's different it, it was a relief for me just to be in a different place for a while and and, and one of the things about america we just, we, we just i think we just do have a lot of pressure to show outwardly that things are good with us you know like that's that, right and and that's why people buy all this stuff that's why they're always buying bigger and better cars. That's why you know they, they spend so much money, and you know we just don't value kind of non-commercial forms of happiness in a way that you know maybe we should. You know? se- yeah, I guess I mean what we seem to value in wanting all that. I mean, on the one hand, there's the conspicuous consumption and showing off of wealth. On the other hand, there's this sense that somehow that would represent ease. Like right. yeah, there's yeah. a desire to have things easy in a way. Like mm-hmm. that would mean not work so right. much you know like you could just glide around in a jet you know well yeah it's like it's like wally right you ever seen <laughs> right. That movie? right 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 like, you know you're, just, you're literally just skating you know, there's a blob of consumption you know like yeah uh, people do kind of aspire to that you what know? uh david foster foster wallace was always calling narcotized you know like we, <laughs> yeah, wanna, exactly. we just want to be sort of narcotized in a way yeah which yeah which, which yeah. is doesn't seem like happiness exactly to me it's like sort of more i don't know we're pushing lots of different narcotics on people. Food is a narcotic, you know, television is a narcotic, uh, right. the internet's a narcotic, sports is a narcotic, like, you know, and narcotics are narcotics, you know, people are, are constantly taking pills these days. And we're always, we're in this state of kind of like stupefaction. It's like uh, rather than happiness, what we want is release, relief from pain. Right, yeah. Which isn't the same thing as happiness, really, is it? Yeah, it's a state of like unfeeling and unsensitivity, which again makes Trump make perfect sense you know what I mean right. like he's just he's a he's a human consumption machine he has no <laughs> thoughts no hobbies no interests no nothing he's just like you know you know he's just right he's just kind of consuming the world on this vast scale and that's somehow I don't know it's to like, me it's symbolic of something I don't know like Baron Harkonnen yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah the glow gliding around <laughs> with the horrible things on his face yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah I that, that wow yeah that's I don't think I'm ever going to be able to look at Trump again now without thinking of that scene in the David Lynch Dune with the suppurating yeah exactly yeah cysts. it would be great if he started developing those yeah that would be fantastic yeah and and if if Elon Musk who is now on his advisory team would make him some sort of hover suit. magnets that he could <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah. that would be good yeah. and he's got to bring max one side into the government somehow that would be that would be really good <laughs> oh yeah. max one said yeah at, at least so i can listen to his voice for the next <laughs> four to eight years matt taibbi thank you so much for being on think again jason thank you and matt's book is insane clown president dispatches from the 2016 circus it's the funniest book ever written i i would i you know i'm I'm gonna sign off on that it's the funniest book ever written folks all right thanks matt all right thanks very much jason and that wraps think again for this week 
Uh, I'm like a broken record on this, but I want to thank everyone who's rated or reviewed us on iTunes and any other platform. It is like giving us the gift of visibility. More people out there discover the podcast and hear it, and these ideas get shared. So if you have a minute and you haven't done it yet, I would really appreciate it if you could rate or review us on your favorite platform. And we'll be back next week with Nato Thompson, Artistic Director of Creative Time, which is one of the most interesting arts organizations operating today, uh, in my opinion. And I hope you'll be here, too.